Hey, this is Brent Jensen. You're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. The show is brought to you by Pariah Pickups, handcrafted guitar pickups from down in Detroit, Rock City. Check them out at pariahpickups.com. The show is also brought to you by Fleming Properties. Steve Fleming is one of my best mates, and if you're looking to buy or sell your home anywhere in North America, reach out to Steve at FlemingProperties.com. Lastly, don't forget to check out Thursday Night Record Club on the Brent Jensen Music YouTube channel. So, the previous episode of No Sleep Till Sudbury featuring fun and interesting music facts was so popular with you guys that I thought I should do a second episode with even more fascinating rock facts. We all love this stuff, and I'm happy to dedicate another show to it. And remember... If you want to learn more about your favorite classic rock and roll records, you can always go to my YouTube channel and watch Thursday Night Record Club, where my co-host Alex Heward and I talk about all the greatest rock records in the history of the genre. All right, more super cool rock facts. Here we go. Most of us have heard Bob Seger's timeless classic, Night Moves, and some of us can even sing along. We know the words. Now, some of those words were adjusted just slightly to support the song's rhyming scheme. In the breakdown of the song, which was inspired directly by Bruce Springsteen's Jungle Land, by the way, there's a line that goes, humming a song from 1962. Ain't it funny how the night moves? When he was asked in an interview what the song from 1962 was, Seeger revealed that it was Be My Baby by the Ronettes. That song, however, was released a year later in August of 1963. It's possible that Seeger was mistaken, but more likely is the fact that he shaved a year off the release date just to accommodate that rhyme between two and moves. When it came time for Kiss to go into the studio to record Destroyer, the very critical follow-up to their breakthrough live record Kiss Alive, they were under a lot of pressure. As such, they brought in production wizard Bob Ezrin, who had previously worked with Alice Cooper. Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley had already written more than enough songs for the record, and they provided Ezrin with the 15-song demo, thinking that they would be ahead of the game. It turns out Ezrin rejected most of the material on the demo tape, except for a few bits and pieces of riffs and lyrics here and there, and two compositions that were extensively reworked by Ezrin to make it onto the album. Those songs were Detroit Rock City, and God of Thunder. And despite being known as Gene Simmons' trademark song, God of Thunder was actually written by Paul Stanley. And at the suggestion of Bob Ezrin, given to Simmons to sing, as it lined up more with his demon persona. Stanley was initially not very pleased about this, but eventually got over it. The iconic album cover of London Calling by The Clash features a photo of Clash bassist Paul Simonon smashing his bass against the stage in a fit of punk rock glory. The story behind his actions is this. The band were playing a show at the Palladium in New York City on September 20, 1979. Simonon smashed his bass out of frustration when he learned that security at the show was not permitting the audience to get up out of their seats. The woman who took the picture, Penny Smith, didn't want the shot to be used as the album cover. She said it was too out of focus. But she was eventually talked into it by Clash frontman Joe Strummer. Where's the bass today? 
Both pieces of it are on display in the Museum of London. And speaking of bass, Pretender's hit song, My City Was Gone, from their Learning to Crawl record, has that trademark bass line that stays in your head for hours after you hear the song. You'd know it if I played it for you. The song itself was written by Pretender's singer Chrissy Hind after returning to her native Akron, Ohio, after living in England for a number of years. But the bass line itself was crafted by bass player Tony Butler from a warm-up exercise he used to use just to loosen up his fingers before shows. Sound familiar? An iconic guitar player told a very similar story about how a silly little riff he used to play almost as a joke to warm his fingers up, turned into one of the most popular songs in rock history. That guitar player, of course, was none other than Slash. And the song was Sweet Child of Mine. Almost eight beats into police mega-hit Roxanne, we hear an atonal noise that doesn't quite belong, followed by a muffled laugh shortly before the vocal track comes in. What is it? And why is it there? The answer is that it was a studio accident that was left in. During recording, police singer Sting accidentally sat down on a piano keyboard in the studio, which caused the peculiar piano noise and his subsequent laughter. It was decided the accident should be left in, and the band in fact credited Sting for his butt piano playing in the liner notes of their Outlandos Demur record. Years later in their career, Sting would bring a song into the synchronicity recording sessions that would eventually become Every Breath You Take. There were a number of difficulties along the way. It was said that Sting and police drummer Stuart Copeland hated each other by this time, and fistfights between the two happened enough times to bring a halt to the sessions. There was a lot of difficulty performing the song, and apparently the actual temperature in the studio was so high that Copeland had to tape his drumsticks to his hands to avoid slippage due to the perspiration. Eventually, the song was released and became a mega-hit. And as of 2003, Sting was making an average of $2,000 a day in royalties from this song alone. Alan Cross did the show a few years ago, and a story he told me about Pearl Jam's song Alive still sticks in my head. The story goes that he was invited by a friend to listen to Pearl Jam's 10 record on a stereo system that was probably the most expensive one that he'd ever experienced. Before the listening session began, his friend told him that in listening to the song Alive, he would be able to hear an acoustic guitar track buried deep in the mix that isn't typically audible on other audio equipment. Cross was doubtful because as a professional broadcaster and music personality, he'd never heard nor heard of this mysterious acoustic guitar track. But as the song played on this mega system, there it was. Very faintly, someone can be heard playing an acoustic guitar very deep in the mix of the Pearl Jam song, Alive. The late Marvin Aday, more popularly known as Meatloaf, was the face of the gargantuan Battered of Hell record. But the record almost didn't happen, and if it were up to famed record executive Clive Davis, it definitely wouldn't have happened. 
The record was developed from a musical that composer Jim Steinman had written previously, and he and Meatloaf decided that based on the quality of a few of the songs, they should make a proper record together. They were rejected by record companies for two years after that decision, and when they approached CBS executive Clive Davis, he abruptly told Meatloaf that actors don't make records. And then he told Steinman that Steinman didn't know how to write songs that he clearly knew nothing about rock and roll. When a smaller subsidiary of Epic Records finally agreed to sign Meatloaf and put the record out, Battered of Hell would go on to sell more than 43 million copies worldwide. See folks, even Clive Davis misses a few. The Doors tend to be a very polarizing band. Other fans love singer Jim Morrison and his deep shamanistic rock poetry, or they hate it. When you see a song on a Doors record called Soul Kitchen, you can't be faulted for assuming that it's another journey into Morrison's reliable brand of spiritual nebula. But in this case, it's not. The song Soul Kitchen was actually a tribute to a soul food restaurant called Olivia's, located in Venice Beach, California. Morrison frequented the restaurant, and because he often overstayed his welcome there, the staff would have to ask him to leave. And this is where the Soul Kitchen lyrics, Let me sleep all night in your Soul Kitchen, come from. Fellow 60s rocker Jimi Hendrix did something similar with the lyrics from his song, Fire. Upon hearing the song, one might assume that there are some sexual connotations afoot, but in fact, it's actually quite the opposite. The Jimi Hendrix experience was in England playing gigs during the Christmas season, and bass player in the band Noel Redding invited Hendrix to his mother's house in Folkestone, England, on a very chilly New Year's Eve after that night's show. The home had a fireplace, and because he was so cold, Hendrix asked Redding's mother if he could stand next to her fireplace to warm up. She agreed, but her German shepherd was in the way, causing Hendrix to say, Ah, move over, Rover, and let Jimmy take over. And that's how the lyrics from Fire came about. A lot of people wonder how a Texas blues band like ZZ Top could have put out a new wave type record like Eliminator. In April of 1980, ZZ Top went to Europe for the first time, performing on the popular BBC music program The Old Grey Whistle Test. The band spent a lot of time in BBC's studios in the company of another band who were also performing there, English electronic group Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, or OMD. ZZ Top guitarist and singer Billy Gibbons was said to be very inspired by the band and their sound. Following this uniquely inspirational experience, ZZ Top began to experiment marginally with synthesizers on their next album, El Loco, in 1981. And on their next record, everything completely changed. The little old blues band from Texas fully embraced a synthesized sound. And Eliminator was a smash hit, selling more than 11 million copies in the U.S. alone. Boston frontman Tom Schultz is commonly recognized as a musical genius in recognition of the fact that he more or less created Boston's debut record completely on his own. The recording that we hear today 
is actually Schultz's demo of the record, not a professional version recorded in an actual studio. Schultz was so insistent on using the demos that he produced himself in his basement that not even the record company knew until the record was in stores. My favorite example of Schultz's unorthodox creativity can be heard at the 1 minute and 41 second mark of Hitch a Ride, a song from the debut Boston record. Schultz wanted to add a vibrato effect to his organ solo, in the same way a guitar player might do by bending a string to alter the note. But because you can't bend keys, and effects were limited back then, to get that bent note, Schultz slowed down one of the recording reels by pressing on it with his finger during the solo. Def Leppard fans may assume that the four words they hear at the beginning of Rock of Ages are some kind of a German count-in, Gunter Glieben Glauken Globen, but in reality, it's just gibberish. The words were initially uttered by producer Mutt Lang during the recordings of Rock of Ages because Lang just got tired of counting the band in with the standard one, two, three, four. The guys in the band thought it was funny, and when it came time to mix the song, everyone decided that it should be left in. And when the band played the song live, the peculiar count-in honors are given to drummer Rick Allen, and he's usually accompanied by the audience. Throughout the entirety of Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon record, voices can be heard in the background. During the last week of recording the album, Pink Floyd frontman Roger Waters asked staff and session guests of the Abbey Road Studios to answer questions that he'd printed on flashcards. The interviewees sat in a darkened room, and they were asked questions related to the album's central themes, which were madness, violence, and death. And some of those answers are what you hear at various points in the record. Paul and Linda McCartney were among those interviewed, being at Abbey Road at the time, but it was thought that they were trying too hard to be funny, and their responses were discarded and didn't make it onto the album. All right, last one, also featuring Maka. Sometime during the Guns N' Roses heyday of the early 90s, McCartney brought his daughter Stella to see the band in concert. She's a huge Guns N' Roses fan. Around the middle of the show, the band goes into Live and Let Die, one of their more popular covers, originally written, of course, by Paul McCartney for the James Bond film of the same name. During the performance, Paul looks down at his daughter and says, You know, your dad wrote that one. She looked back up at him, squinting, and replied, Whatever, Dad. All right, this has been No Sleep Till Subaru with Brent Jensen. Till next time, folks. Take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Subaru, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon worldwide. <laughs>